Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning. I'm Scarlett Fu. I'm in with Francine Lacqua. We are here uh, in place Hi, of Tom Keen and uh, David Gura. Francine, you made it over from the studio, from the TV Hi, studio. Hi, Scarlett. Who's who? Are you Tom? <laughs> Am I Tom? Who's David? You know what? I will be David because I think uh, you know Tom's quibbles a little bit better these days. It's a little bit of a surveillance reunion uh, from old days uh, when I was on the morning show a couple years ago to what it is now. And of course, uh, Gura is off uh, looking for kale somewhere. And I hope that Tom is doing the same. A rumor has it that he might be off for a couple of days. Yeah, I think it's a week and I need to do my best as a Tom Keen impression. So markets on the move. Uh, we have a bit of a risk off feel this morning. And of course, this comes on the heels of more devastating news out of Europe with the terrorist attack in Barcelona. I want to bring in Jutta Clausen, a fellow at the Wilson Center. Uh, Jutta founded the Western Jihadism Project, which studies Western violent extremists associated with Al-Qaeda. Uh, Yuta, give us your analysis about the attack in Barcelona and perhaps more importantly, the second attack in Camarol, Spain, which uh, came a couple of hours later. Yes, yeah. Good morning, uh, Scarlett. Good morning, Francine. Yes, it's uh, uh, terrible news out of Spain. Uh, it uh, appears to have been uh, a coordinated uh, effort uh, the Spanish authorities are talking about. A cell com- comprised of as many as 12 people. Uh, the second attack occurred uh, late uh, last night uh, and didn't go the way the terrorists had planned. Uh, a car filled with uh, five people who were uh, carrying fake suicide vests ran into a police checkpoint and uh, they were all killed, uh, but did manage to hurt uh, both some policemen and uh, some pedestrians. Um, before they were shot. Uh, The authorities are now linked uh, both to the devastating uh, attack in uh, Barcelona yesterday afternoon and this uh, second attack in a tourist area uh, called Tarragona and uh, to an explosion Wednesday night in a house also on the coastline uh, where the house uh, blew up, uh, apparently because of... uh, the gas so chemicals being prepared for bombs. Yeah, so you, you founded the Western Jihadism Project, right, which studies Western violent extremists associated with al-Qaeda. This, what happened yeah. in Barcelona, really um, has all of the hallmarks of similar recent atrocities, not only in London, but also Berlin and Stockholm. Is there anything that authorities can do to stop these kinds of attacks? Well, in these, and in this case, um, the... Uh, High casualties appear in part to be the result of somewhat failing efforts on the part of local authorities. Uh, all buildings in many capitals and pedestrian streets are now uh, protected with barriers and, and bollards uh, that can be raised during the, I mean, to protect uh, pedestrian traffic. And uh, in fact, it appears that uh, the authorities had been warned that um, the Barcelona was, and this particular pedestrian mm-hmm. uh, mall area, uh, had been uh, on a list of possible attacks. And Yuta, it appears does, that. Uh, yeah, does yeah, this feel different? 
does this feel different to London? In London, we had some lone wolves attack. This seems bigger. This seemed or felt more coordinated. And we need to remind all of our listeners that there is still an active manhunt going on in Barcelona and its surroundings. Well, it turned out, in fact, that the London Bridge attack also involved some careful planning. And it was the three people who were the attackers. But behind them were several uh, others who had been supporting. Uh, so what was uh, it, what we don't know yet is to what extent uh, the people in Barcelona were returnees from the Islamic State, or if they were just uh, at least one was local. Uh, but it's possible that others had uh, had traveled uh, from the Islamic State, but they could also be local, as was the case in in London. So they they do uh, look very similar those two attacks in many. Uh, the use of white vans, which is a high symbolic uh, vehicle type. Um, the white is an allusion to the flag of uh, that the Islamic State carries when it goes out to, into war. Uh, so it's an offensive uh, the collar. Uh, and the, the fake suicide vest, the knives, mm. the gas canisters, etc. So they were very descript- they were very similarly scripted. Yuta, how does Spain prevent copycat attacks following what happened yesterday? Attacks that were that are inspired by Islamic State directed attacks, or is that impossible? Well, you can only take. I mean, we have been taking our shoes off in airports and uh, having our bags searched and not bringing uh, liquids on board. The only way you can really go about this is to uh, take preventive measures. Uh, at, at, that would make it more difficult for the terrorists. And this is not just uh, jihadist terrorists. Terrorists copy from each other, as we saw in, in Charlottesville. Uh, vans or cars uh, are now increasingly being used uh, in these types of attacks on, on, on civilians. And it, it, you just have to change the road design and, and take precautionary measures the same way uh, that we do with, to protect airplanes. It should be said that Spain has been uh, very aggressive in counterterrorism and has had many arrests and many successful prosecutions. Uh, so it's it's very hard to uh, to whack changes and and say that uh, they have not done what they should be doing. All right, Yuta Clausen, thank you so much for joining us. Yuta Clausen is a Wilson Center fellow. She founded the Western Jihadism Project, which studies Western violent extremists associated with Al Qaeda. But of course, uh, this latest round of attacks in Barcelona was uh, claimed by the Islamic State, uh, an attack that was directed by the Islamic State. I'm Scarlett Fu in for, let's just say David Gura, which means Francine Lacqua, you're in for Tom Keen. <laughs> That's a statement and a half, Scarlett. <laughs> Tom Keen actually on vacation. So we're waiting for updates from Tom on his vacation. Yeah, Maybe sure he'll he's post listening it to Instagram. In. Uh, I'm, I'm positive he's listening in. Uh, and he'll want to listen in because we have Jim Glassman, J.P. Morgan commercial banking head economist, with us right now. And Jim... One thing that I saw in your note, which was absolutely fascinating, kind of blew my mind, was this new idea about oil and the increased supply of it driving the global economy's recent growth. It kind of sounds like oil is at a sweet spot in that it's no longer a drag on the energy sector, but the promise of plentiful supply provides now a bit of a stimulus. Yeah. And, you know... For, until recently, we were seeing all the negative side to this because when oil prices fell in half, 
back in 2014 in the fall. Anybody in that business, the reality changed, and they had to cut back dramatically. And I really think that's what the U.S. economy has been dealing with for the last two years. The reason the economy slowed down is because those guys live in a mark-to-market world, so they have to cut back. So rail shipments, energy services, businesses, CapEx, profits, all that stuff got hurt. We consumers who benefit um, kind of take our time. I mean, and what you saw, the, the way you saw that is the energy outlays are going way down. We're not spending as much anymore for energy. And what do we do about it? Well, temporarily, we didn't do anything because saving went up. Mm. And now it started to come back down. So when you have events like this happening, the initial thing that happens is it hurts the economy. And then the positive side of it starts to kick in. And, you know, we as a country, we as a country still benefit from cheap energy because yep. we still use twice as much oil mm. as we consume. And the world actually has tremendous needs. I think people aren't aware of this, but ask most people, how many cars were sold last year in the world? Mm-hmm. 88 million cars. We sold yep. 17 and a half million here. But Jim, That's what enormous. Don't... That, what, people don't buy cars to go sit in the garage. They're, they're driving, they have needs. They're using it. Right. I mean, here in Europe, at least, there's more and more electric cars, but that's a conversation yeah. for another day. Jim, yeah, when no. you look at the price of oil, right, and, and you certainly look, I used to cover OPEC when oil was at 70, and then it dropped to 50, and then it dropped to 40, and actually didn't give much of an impetus to the global economy. So why are you so certain that this time it will? You know, because it's all uneven. I remember my first experience with this. Mid-1980s, oil prices crashed. They fell 50%, right? So we, I was at the Fed, and we economists said, don't worry. This is all really good stuff because uh, there are more people benefiting than are hurt. And the next thing we saw, chaos. And, and, and it, 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 the, the energy sector just went uh, went down in the Southwest. And what we did, what we forgot was these things play out unevenly. The business community has to cut back first, and those who benefit take their time. And so it all looks it all looks initially like it's a negative, and that's why the equity market was constantly tumbling whenever people see oil prices down, forgetting, because they don't know what consumers are doing with this, and it takes time to see that. And now I think we're seeing that story all around the world. Jim, you write that these are benign supply-side forces that's uh, helping the benefits of lower oil trickle down to uh, consumers' pockets. That and technology. That and technology. So, so for example, cell phone, unlimited data, all that kind of stuff. Inflation relief that comes from new technologies and better ways of doing things is the good inflation. The bad bad, bad deflation is when you don't have enough demand to meet the supply of the economy. We're not seeing that in, in the developed economies. Employment is growing. These economies are growing. We're recovering from a very bad recession. So to me, the soft news that we're getting on inflation is the good kind of stuff. It's the kind of stuff that it, 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 the less I had to pay for something, the more I have available for something else. So we would worry about soft inflation news if we were seeing economies stalling out and employment sputtering. But yeah. it's not. People still have a hard time agreeing on whether inflation is good or bad for consumers. I mean, you want to see inflation in the economy. It's a sign yeah. of, of, of growth, of health. But as a consumer, you don't necessarily want to. No. You know, people – I think there's an illusion here. People have – people remember um, – the, the, the 70s and 80s, if you were old enough, uh, they tend to think, they remember, well, my pay was going up every year, yeah. 5 6 7%. The problem with high inflation is if your income isn't keeping up with it, it's not such a good thing. If you can keep me the same income, cut my prices, I'm great, I'm happy with that. But the problem is, it's all part of a bundle, and if inflation's low, that means wages aren't going to be doing as well either. 
And that's certainly something the Federal Reserve has been trying to tackle. Jim Glassman, thank you so much for yeah. coming by. Jim Glassman is head economist at J.P. Morgan Chase Commercial Banking. And his note on the five lessons from the second quarter of 2017, fascinating stuff. It starts with oil, but it goes on to talk about the global economy growing, but not necessarily at a unified pace. The United States, of course, leading the way there. Let's stay on that topic of Twitter and the president, and we want to bring in John Hudak. He's a senior fellow of governance studies at Brookings Institute. John, as you know, um, Bob Corker, the senator from uh, Tennessee, has come out and made some strong points on President Trump, calling for radical changes, yes, but questioning the competence of President Trump, his dedication uh, and, and all of that. My question to you is, why isn't the president responding? Why aren't we seeing a tweet from the president? His supporters certainly want to see him responding. Uh, his opponents certainly expect him to respond. What do you think? Well, the president doesn't respond to criticism well at all. I think actually it's, it's remarkable that he hasn't taken uh, Senator Corker to task on Twitter yet, which is normally his, his childlike response to any criticism. But uh, Senator Corker is doing this not because he uh, wants to disrupt things for the president or because he's trying to be a thorn in his side. He's doing it for the sake of the brand of the party. He's looking at this and knows that there's a very serious problem in the White House, a very serious problem for Republicans, and he wants to fix it. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the president wants to fix it. All right, John, what does that mean for other high-profile Republicans? Do they follow him and do the same? It's unclear, I think, what Republican strategy is, because I think most people don't know what to do with the president. Normally, you would have someone in leadership take that step and everyone else step back and say, you know what, here is someone who, if they say something, will get through to the president, and this doesn't need to be a gang-style uh, approach. But if Senator Corker can't get through, uh, Republicans face two choices. They're either going to need to pile on, hoping that eventually you hit a critical mass that the president starts behaving, or you start piling on just to distance yourself from the president because he's so toxic. Right. But John, did, did, you know, first of all, does the president care? And if he does care, does it hurt his base? I don't think the president cares at all because he has deluded himself into thinking that all criticism is wrong and that there is this silent uh, supermajority of Americans who actually support him, who are lying to pollsters, who are not connecting with mainstream media. So I, I think that's where the problem is. That's where the disconnect is. The reality, the president is unpopular and he's making tremendous mistakes. Uh, unfortunately, the president does not believe. That's all fake news to him. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't care because he doesn't think he needs to care. He doesn't care because he doesn't think he needs to care. Meantime, uh, the Republicans care quite a bit. And according to Greg Vallier of Horizon Investments, he put out his morning note today and he says that on issues like taxes, one GOP source says that Trump is irrelevant. They have a job to do, according to Republicans, and they can get it done. They just want him to butt out. Is that realistic? 
It absolutely is realistic. We have experienced moments in our history where presidents have been marginalized for a variety of reasons. And typically it's because of scandal. And certainly this president is facing scandal with his, his sympathetic comments about Nazis this past week. But what is really happening here touches back on Senator Corker's words, and that is capacity. And that is the president doesn't have the knowledge or the understanding or the capacity to deal with the details of policy. And so Congress does, and they are going to go on about their business and start putting things on the president's desk without really discussing with him what the the details of that uh, is. John, I wonder what the polls will look like, uh, the approval polls, approval ratings uh, for the president after this week, this this uh, blockbuster week. There was a poll released on Wednesday by Marist, which showed that the president has a 35 percent approval rating. Does the president care about his approval rating as long as his base is with him? Well, the president's job approval rating, to, to the first part of your question, is, is going to continue to slide uh, in the, the near future. It ha- has been since Inauguration Day, and with the antics that we've seen from him over the past week, you have to assume it's going to continue. Uh, but again, as I, as I was saying on the other side of the break, uh, the president doesn't believe polls unless they say something good about what he's doing. And, and I wrote on Brookings FixGov blog earlier this week uh, that that's political malpractice for the president to say only good polls are scientific polls. And so, yeah, he he doesn't care. He thinks that he probably has a better than 50 percent approval rating, even though we know it's in the low to mid 30s. John, uh, Gary Cohn stayed put, but there was, you know, speculation yesterday that he was so unhappy with Charlottesville comments that he may uh, contemplate, you know, resigning. Now, this wasn't confirmed in any way, but how much of a disaster would it have been for the White House had he resigned? I think from an economic perspective and from a policy perspective, it would have been a true disaster. Uh, there are, uh, There is a real need in that White House for adults to be in the room because the president is not an adult. Uh, Gary Cohn understands economic policy as well as anyone, and he's someone who has the president's trust and has the president's ear. Uh, They need more of that in the White House, even as people look at this and ask themselves, how can anyone work for this man? Well, maybe Congress can step into the breach and and play the adults in the room. They haven't thus far, which is one reason why we're in this divisive environment. Again, I I go back to Greg Vallier of Horizon Investments saying that Republicans on Capitol Hill are are, are nearing this consensus that they they need to go at it alone. They need to ignore the White House and perhaps even work with Democrats on issues like tax cuts and infrastructure spending. I mean, perhaps some good can come out of this, John. I think that's true. I think if Congress uh, buckles down and starts to work across the aisle, work across uh, the chambers, and starts engaging with some of the president's aides who know what they're talking about, you can get some real legislative uh, progress. You know, the president in this situation reminds me of people we've all worked with before, and that is the type of person who never comes up with good ideas, but you have to convince them that your ideas are actually their ideas before they'll sign off on it. I think that's what we're entering now. Congress and the president's advisors will draw up these plans and then convince the president that they're his plans. That's Mm. probably the only way forward. That's called managing up, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) That is right. Okay, well, that being the case, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have uh, certainly come out with strong statements after Charlottesville. They did not personally tie it to President Trump in any way. Are they still in a position to work with the president? 
They are in uh, some of the most difficult positions in uh, Washington. That is, they have to, as leaders of Congress, shepherd legislation through their respective chambers, and they still have to keep open communication with the White House. The president has had some tough words for Mitch McConnell, and I assume he's going to have some tough words for the speaker as well. Uh, But they are caught between what I think their conscience is telling them they should do, and that is stand on the rooftops and berate the president and the realities of the job that they have as leaders in Congress. It's certainly not an enviable position for either of them. Right. But, John, you say the president is not an adult. A lot of people that will have voted for him or that respect the presidency will push back against that. If you don't think he's an adult, who is an adult that the president would listen to? Well, clearly you have people like Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohn and, and others who are uh, have the president's ear, who the president uh, uh, likes and respects and believes that he's getting good counsel from. Uh, those are the types of uh, people who need to uh, be the uh, – rather, these are the people who will be the keys to policy advancement in this administration. Right. But will he uh, listen where, to them? They well, can put so policies – but the president so needs far, to, to enact it, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's unclear whether he's going to listen to them. I think there were some great minds talking to the president about uh, health care and what the fallout of health care would be if he, if he chased after certain plans. And ultimately, none of the council got through in a way that proved effective on health care. So we don't know who the president will listen to and when he will listen to those people. And I think that's the most confounding problem in uh, the White House right now. All right. The chief of staff, uh, freshly minted, he's come on, he's kind of changed the White House, the rules, the way, you know, everybody has to go through him, including the president's daughter, to talk to the president. Is he instrumental to anything that will happen in the White House or how instrumental can he be? You know, the chief of staff, Mr. Kelly, he um, he has uh, apparently said that he manages the staff and he doesn't manage the president. Um, and that's probably the right role for a chief of staff, but it's not the right role for Trump's chief of staff. Someone needs to manage the president. And I think the best thing that, that uh, Kelly can do is to fall back on his roots. Uh, he's a patriot. He's a, a general. He is someone who has, for his entire life, put his country above himself. And I I think he needs to think of the battle that's going on in the White House right now is one more part of his patriotism. Chiefs of staff normally only manage the staff, but John Kelly needs to start to manage the president for the sake of the nation. I'm so glad you brought up the the chief of staff, Francine, because I wanted to go there next. Uh, We've had three full weeks of John Kelly as chief of staff. And uh, John and Francine, I think you'll remember while the president was speaking uh, on Tuesday at Trump Tower, there were pictures of John Kelly looking down, looking frustrated, maybe dismayed, but certainly uh, he kind of had to wonder where this came from because it was not anticipated or planned for the president to be speaking uh, to reporters. The plan was originally for him to give a statement and then to turn things over to Gary Cohn and Elaine Chao. Uh, John, could you rate John Kelly right now in his first three weeks as chief of staff? How good of a job has he done? I think uh, Mr. Kelly's first few days on the job were magnificent. He cleaned house. He, by all accounts, turned around the organization uh, within the West Wing and really uh, set himself apart from the record of Rents Priebus. Since then, however, he cleaned up one mess and the bigger mess, the more problematic mess that is, the president, uh, continues to get worse. And I think what we saw in uh, John Kelly's face the other day during the, the Trump 
uh, uh, sideshow, was a man who, for the first time, was recognizing uh, the, the challenges that lay ahead. The, the real depth of that challenge. And, and maybe uh, he was saying to himself, yes, I actually do have to manage the president. This is the bigger problem. Now mm-hmm. that the staff is fixed, I need to move on to this. Okay, that's from our point of view. But from President Trump's point of view, he's doing what he wants to do. He wants to speak when he wants to speak. And John Kelly, his chief of staff, is in charge of this staff. Uh, by Donald Trump's standards, perhaps John Kelly being there and ending the leaks is sufficient. Uh, do you think President Trump thinks John Kelly is doing a good job? Oh, I'm sure that the president thinks John Kelly is doing a good job. And I'm sure that he also thinks that the job that he's doing is sufficient. So it's incumbent upon uh, John Kelly then to figure out a way to get through to the president to get him to change. He cannot just clearly march into the Oval Office and say, Mr. President, you need to shut up. You need to stop talking about this. You need to do these things differently because the president doesn't respond to that. He's going to have to learn uh, how to get the president to respond in the right ways. And one of the problems, of course, is that he's not an old friend of Donald Trump. Yes. He's not someone who knows him that well. Yeah, very good point. He's not one of the, the original loyalists. John Hudak, Senior Fellow of Governance Studies at Brookings, thank you so much. The last 15 minutes of Bloomberg Surveillance, we're going to focus on some entertainment that you might partake in this weekend. When was the last time you went to go see a movie at a movie theater? Francine? Yeah, so my mine actually is really not glamorous. So I went to see Cars 3 with the kids <laughs> just 10 days ago. In my head, I'm cooler than this. So I went to see Baby Driver, but I haven't, but it's on my list. It's on your list. So you plan to go back. I went to go see Dunkirk a few weeks ago on IMAX, so it was wonderful. And, of course, there are a lot of really pretty boys with very chiseled uh, cheekbones as well, so that helped. <laughs> In addition to the lovely cinematography. Um, our next guest is Mitch Lowe. He's CEO of MoviePass. And... This is interesting because MoviePass is marketing a Netflix type of movie-going subscription service that would cost Francine $9.95 per month to let her see as many movies as she wants, well, as frequently as once a day. Bargain. Bargain, yes. If she were to move to the U.S. in about 90% of the theaters in the U.S. Uh, So we're talking $9.95 to see as many movies as you want to. Mitch, this sounds too good to be true. What's the catch? Well, you know, there really is no catch to it. Uh, the company has a uh, business plan that we've tested over the last year of various price points and and utilization. And, and you know, the beauty of this is it gets people more energized about going back to the movies. And it's, it's really addressing those people who have, have uh, really only go to about three to six movies a year but would love to go more. But actually, just as much as the price, it's the concern that they're going to see a bad movie and mm. feel bad about wasting their time. And, and you know, when, when, when Netflix launched, you know, one of the kind of the two big goals were removing the anxiety of having to worry about returning the movie to the video store, kind of that ugly late fee thing. And the second was building a, a, a unique library uh, that uh, addressed the long tail so that no matter what your tastes were, uh, you could find what you wanted. What 
the byproduct of all that was is people started experimenting with movies that they never would have rented from Blockbuster. They started experimenting, you know, getting interested in a director or various films on genres, and things that they would never have done in an a la carte manner. And so it expanded people's interest in film and their enjoyment. And this is what, what uh, MoviePass does, is MoviePass kind of removes that, first big obstacle of going to the movies, which is, is it really yeah. going to be worth it? Well, but if still- it isn't, you just trash it the next day to all your friends <laughs> and you don't feel bad about wasting money. Yeah, I mean, you haven't only made friends, right? AMC slammed you and they also threatened with legal action. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's heartwarming that they care so much about us. Uh, you know, we're probably, you know, one one hundred thousandth the size of their company. Uh, you know, it's the same thing that Blockbuster uh, said to me when I was uh, running Redbox when we came out with the dollar a night rental when I they were charging that. five. And, you know, what they didn't understand is with technology, with getting product where people want want it to be, uh, getting people to go more often and and utilize the inventory, we were able to, to rent movies for a fraction of what our competitors did. Right. And this is the same scenario. We, we, we know what we're doing, uh, and uh, uh, we're going to get people energized to go back to the movies. And, but- and the good news for AMC is we're going to pay them full price. But here's the thing, and Francine brings up a good point with, with AMC's objections, legal objections at, mm-hmm. at that. They, they say that the pricing is unsustainable. How, how long can you keep this $9.95 a month subscription going? Well, we, we have uh, plenty of funding uh, for the time being. Uh, it may be that we have to go back and, and raise more money, and, and we're seeing you know, an amazing uh, amount of response from consumers. They love the idea, and they're going to go back uh, and spend a lot of money at the theaters. And we have multiple revenue streams uh, that we'll be able to generate uh, revenue from, uh, anywhere from uh, working with the studios to, mm-hmm. to get people to those smaller films. Because when our, our customers go to twice as many as they went before MoviePass, and, and almost all of that increase are to movies that, only, that gross less than $20 million. Mitch- That's where studios need help. Mitch, how many movies are they going to on average then? What are you learning from the data? Well, our primary customer, before they start, goes to three to six movies a year. And then after they become a subscriber, they go to six to 12 movies a year. All right, Mitch, I might ask a question that sounds stupid, but actually, here in the UK, right, they have some special offers for Orange Tuesday or Orange Thursdays. Are you seeing people only go on Saturday night? And if it is, then what's the benefit Mm. for you guys? Good question. Well, actually, our, our subscribers do just the opposite. Uh, they go to movies during the weekdays, and they go to smaller films. Uh, our subscribers are using this as a way to go to films that are a little bit less well-known, that don't benefit from big mass media. And they use it just in the same way the Netflix subscribers use it to see films that they never would have uh, known about uh, as a way to, to and without risk. Mitch, I want to get your thoughts on a story that Bloomberg News published this morning about how movie studios are considering whether to ignore the objections of AMC and other cinema chains and go ahead with this plan to offer digital rentals of films just weeks after they appear in theaters. I mean, that would be bad news Mm -hmm. for the theaters. That wouldn't be good news for you either. What are your thoughts on this possibility? 
You know, I love innovation and I love new ways to expand people's interests. You know, the things I learned at Redbox was when you offer more options and more ways to consume entertainment, people consume more. It does not, it'll cannibalize a little bit from each of the other options, but the overall pie gets bigger. And we see that over and over again. I, I, you know, I've been in this business for 35 years. I, I spent 13,000 hours working behind video store counters, and I have seen every new option expand the total pie, and especially the pie for the um, entertainment community, especially the creative side of it. So I'm not worried about that at all. I think it will definitely appeal. Uh, mm. to a fair amount of people, and it'll be exciting. Uh, mm. I, you know, I know the, the theatrical industry is against it, and, and that just means you know, we in the theatrical side of the business need to offer a better product and, and more options to our consumers. And many of our consumers grew up on subscription. Yeah. Not everybody. You know, we don't expect this to take over the world. We mm. expect it yeah. to appeal to a small amount, you know, millions, but, you know, Mitch. relative to, yes. I, I, I'm going to ask you a question which may be a bit uncomfortable. But actually, I feel like we have to because of Barcelona and a lot of attacks we see not only in Europe but in the U.S. Does security yeah. ever come into your thought? Do people go to the movies less because of attacks? Yeah, you know, going all the way back to Columbine, uh, you know, there's always been that concern. Uh, you know, I, I think all of us have to stand strong. You know, as a business, we have to employ all the security features we can. And as things get more and more risky, we need to put more and more uh, security features for for places where people gather. And, you know, you see it, the barriers, you know, uh, my my son just recently came from Barcelona just last week. Uh, he lives there. And it was, you know, I, I see when I visit him, the big barriers they put. Those are the types of things anybody in the industry, whether it's in the theatrical or whether it's amusement parks, needs to continue to improve our security features. But mm-hmm. we can't at the same time, you know, kind of hide in our homes. You know, we need to, you know, the battle against terrorism will be won one way or another, and we need to stay strong while that goes on. We need to continue living our lives. All right. Mitch Lowe, CEO Mm -hmm. of MoviePass. Thank you so much. MoviePass, as we mentioned, marketing a movie-going subscription services that costs just under $10 a month and lets Francine see as many movies as she wants, (laughs) um, up to once a day, in about 90% of the theaters in the U.S. So the catch for you, Francine, is that you have to move to New York. I, I will. If I can leave the kids behind here, I will, Scarlett. And we'll go to the movie together. I think that's a great invitation. I'm taking mm. you up on it. I wonder how Mr. Lacqua is going to feel about that. Yeah, less good about it than I am right now. Mitch Lowe, thank you once again. This was a pleasure working with you, Francine, for five hours straight, TV and then on radio. I know, fun. It's like we'll do it again. Let's send Tom and David back on holiday. <laughs> this is Surveillance. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>